0: If you look with me on page 12 of your worship folder, you'll find our sacred or our scripture reading that's this morning, which comes from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 24 through 32. So hear God's word to us this morning. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church Oh Father, may you meet us in your word, in spirit, and truth, wherever we find ourselves this morning, with respect to the person of Jesus, whether close or perhaps far, or perhaps we don't know where we stand, help us to know that he is the Savior, the Bridegroom that comes seeking to find and redeem a bride, that you are always moving towards us and not away from us. And so, move towards us this morning in your word and in the power of your spirit. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. What's the purpose of marriage? What's the purpose of marriage? Now, after a sermon um, series that has lasted nearly nine months, you would think that we would have an answer to that question. And in many ways, we do. But I want to pose a question for you again today. what is the purpose of marriage, if somebody were to ask you, what, what's its meaning and its purpose? When you look in our culture, I think generally, um, people think of the purpose of marriage as marriage is there to make, make, make us happy. It's, I get married because I want to be happy, and of course, part of that happiness is not being alone. Part of that happiness is having a companion and a friend. Um, Uh, uh, an outlet for sexual desire. There's all kinds of things, but when we think about the purpose of marriage, I think our culture, about as high and deep as it gets, is simply that it's it's for happiness. And when you read this text of Paul's, what you encounter is is just this incredible claim, a remarkable claim about the meaning of marriage. And what Paul is saying is this, is that marriage actually reveals, mirrors salvation itself. Salvation, in other words, salvation is a love story between God and a people. Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, and the bride, his church, and that he is getting, And that marriage doesn't simply illustrate this and mirror it, but actually participates in it. And Paul, when he refers to Christ and the church, And Marriage by sort of blending together these two realities. He's he's not simply illustrating He's actually saying that the the real deep truth of marriage actually is that it's caught up into Salvation history itself and so I want us to reflect on that this morning the the meaning of marriage in the light of this and And a couple sort of preliminary comments before we dive deep into this question I want to draw your attention back that Paul quotes Genesis he says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And we've, we've looked at the, the question of human sexuality within um, three different contexts. Old cre- and the original creation, in the context of the fall, and then the context of new creation, redemption and consummation. And what's important to see here is that Paul affirms wholeheartedly the original design and purpose of marriage. There's no, there's nothing that he changes. He affirms this, and Jesus does the same when he teaches about marriage. There's a reference back to Genesis 2, that this was how God intends for it, and even now. However, there are a couple important modifications, or probably better, uh, developments in our understanding of human sexuality and marriage, that come with Jesus, and that Paul fully recognizes and builds on. And we've been talking about them over the past couple weeks, but the first one is this, is that the natural family, which in the original creation used to be the most basic unit, the most fundamental um, unit within creation socially, is no longer the fundamental unit. Instead, it's the church, the local church. And so allegiance to Jesus actually takes priority over marriage and family. There's a way that when you are called to follow Jesus... There's sometimes that divides your marriage. I mean, you don't divorce, but sometimes it you divides your marriage because one of you has fallen and the other is not. It divides families because some siblings respond and some don't. And the local church becomes, and the, 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 the allegiance to Jesus is reflected in the life of the local church. But the other thing is this, and this sort of fits with this, is that in the old creation, in the original creation, singleness was never a feasible possibility. To be single was always a sign of the curse. There's no command to singleness in the Old Testament. There's no positive recognition of it. But when Jesus comes, he opens up this door, that it's actually possible to be single and to be fully alive and fully human. To not have biological children, to not have um, sexual experience as you would in marriage, and to be fully alive and fully human. And so those are some important things to keep in the mix. And yet, marriage itself doesn't go away. Even though Jesus says, in marriage there will be no more giving you know, in marriage, it's not as if the reality of marriage now just ceases. Marriage really, at the, the marriage in heaven is actually the marriage of the bridegroom and the bride between Jesus Christ and his people. That's the marriage that supersedes all of our earthly marriages. And yet, the, the reality of marriage continues to be a, a, a primary metaphor and image for how we think about salvation. Marriage reveals something deep about what it means to be human. What it mean, What we desire in life, what we long for. And so I want us to reflect on this this idea that what does it mean for our marriages, again, to participate in this divine reality, for God to be involved in marriage, in our marriages. And really, this is a sermon, this is a big picture sermon. I'm not sticking um, with this text. It's a jumping off point. And I'm going to be looking a lot at Genesis 1 and 2 and the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon and Ephesians 5. But there's three images that I want to introduce you to that that are biblical images to think about marriage, And, and the soul, Aristotle says, the soul needs images to think. And there's a way that an image or a metaphor holds together a lot of truths in one place that sometimes propositions don't. And so here's three things about marriage I want us to reflect on. Your marriage is a garden, your marriage is a throne, and your marriage is a wash basin. Your marriage is a garden, your marriage is a throne, and your marriage is a wash basin. The first marriage happens in a garden, the Garden of Eden, right? God creates the man from the dust of the earth, and he breathes life in him. He places him in a garden. He doesn't put him in a forest that's wild. He puts him in a garden that's already been cultivated. And there's animals, and there's trees, and it's pleasing. And all the animals come to the man, and there's none like him. And so what God makes Adam to feel his aloneness, and at that point he creates the woman from his side and brings her to him. The first marriage happens in a garden, right? And they're naked and they're unashamed. And there's fruit that's on the trees that's pleasing And the garden represents in many ways the perfect ideal of marriage. There's many aspects of the way that a garden represents what we desire out of marriage. There's there's nakedness, vulnerability, intimacy, freedom, security, fruitfulness, and pleasure. Right? All those things. And most importantly in Genesis 2 is that God is in the garden with Adam and Eve. He walks in the garden with them. The garden is the inner... It's the inner sanctum in a sense of the place of God with the man and the woman And so as I've talked in the past the the garden of Eden isn't simply a place But it's a picture of the world The way the world was meant to be and it's an experience The garden is an experience that we long for of being in right relationship with God And the rest of creation right relationship with one another as male and female and so The garden is the first place where marriage begins, and it becomes, of course, something we lose. Of course, we lose the garden. Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden. And where do they go? They go east of Eden. And in Genesis 1 through 11, the further east you get from the garden, the further away you get from the presence of God. And so Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden, and they don't leave the garden naked. They leave the garden clothed. (laughs) Not only do they leave the garden clothed, but they leave the garden cursed. The relationship to the land is cursed. Childbearing is cursed. Their own relationship as husband and wife is cursed. There's a sense of conflict between the man and the woman. And the reason they lose the garden is because they broke covenant. (laughs) They broke covenant with God. God said, you can eat of anything in this garden except one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That you shall not eat. They ate of the tree. They did not keep their promise and they lost the garden. Now, marriage as a garden, the, re- the remarkable thing is that the first man and woman, when they leave the garden, they lose a lot of things. They lose the immediate presence of God. They, mo- they lose access to the tree of life. They they leave clothed. They, they don't. They have to work hard for their food. Nothing comes easy now. But what they don't leave without is marriage. That's that's the one gift that leaves with them when they leave the garden. Marriage leaves with them. And I think that's actually a pretty important. It seems maybe a, an odd point, but I think it's a quite an important point. That the that marriage, in a sense, starts in a garden. Even after we're cast out of the Garden of Eden, there's a way that marriage reality itself is a way of getting back to the garden. And and here's where I want to just reflect with you, you know, the desire for marriage is deep and strong. There's been no human culture that has never not had marriage. Marriage is an instinct because it's bound up with how God created us, the desire for intimacy, for union, for fruitfulness, for all these things. In a way, marriage is a primal memory of the garden. Like we, why do we desire these things about marriage? Because deep down, it's a desire to be back in the garden, where there's shalom, where there's God, where there's fruitfulness, where nakedness and intimacy and all these things are bound up together. Even even if, you know, I've talked. To, I, why is it that people, you know, you know people who have been married four or five times? Why do they keep getting married again? <laughs> I've known people who who live together, they're not married, and they swear off marriage, but everything about their relationship is like marriage. They just don't like the title of it. Because the reality is that the, the experience, as much as distorted, our understanding of it is, there's something that deep that we desire about it. And I would just point your attention to the Song of Solomon. The Song of Solomon is, if you read the whole book, it's, it's, a, it's about a garden. And I even mention, you know, even one of the lines, let my beloved come into his garden and eat of its choice fruits. And the response is, I came to my garden, my sister, my bride, and I gathered my myrrh and my spice and I ate my honeycomb. Of course, that is a very sexually charged text about a garden, but the whole book of Solomon is, Song of Solomon, is about marriage between this man and this woman, that they come together, that in the communion and union of them, there's a way in which they rediscover the bliss of Eden. And it's recreate such that all of creation, right, all these animals and all the the fruit are looking on and celebrating the love of this man and the woman together. together. And and in many ways the book of Song of Solomon is one of those strange books. Because it's just love poetry. And it's very uh, raw in a beautiful way, very explicit. And it points to the healing of intimacy between husband and wife, but also the healing between human beings and God. And in the Christian tradition, it's always been interpreted really as a love song between God and his people. Salvation, friends, is Eden restored. The Bible starts with a garden and ends with a garden. When you go to the end of the book of Revelation, chapter 21 and chapter 22, you have the new Jerusalem like a bride coming out of heaven to the earth, and there's a river, and there's trees. You see, God is reconnecting us to this original reality that he created us for. And so that's the broader context for you to think about this idea that your, 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 your marriage is a garden. And, and the deep draw and the beauty of marriage is often that it, it recreates. It, it, it's just a foretaste of this magnificent reality that God creates. And in that, we get experience of intimacy and nakedness, fruitfulness, and soul-enriching pleasure. So the question is this, if your marriage is a garden, how do you maintain the garden? And this is where I think the metaphor is quite helpful for us to think about our own marriages. How do you maintain a garden? There's two things in particular. The first thing about maintaining a garden of your marriage is that you have to keep covenant. You have to keep covenant. You have to be faithful to it, right? Adam and Eve lost the garden. Why? Because they were unfaithful. They broke their promise. They broke the promise not to eat. And it's the same with marriage. And that's why fidelity is so crucial and central to marriage. Faithfulness cre- creates and protects the garden. And so you have to keep the covenant bounds of your garden But the second second point is this. The other thing that God commands Adam and Eve in the garden is that they have to work and keep it. That a garden is something that needs to be worked and kept. In other words, it needs to be cultivated. There's no garden that just springs up by itself. That's called wilderness. (laughs) Don't confuse a garden with wilderness. A garden is a place where there's locations for plants, there's order and symmetry, there's weeding, there's fertilizing, there's watering, it doesn't just go wherever. And I, I have a neighbor up the street that I don't know, but I, I just envy his, over the past three years, I've just seen his corner lot just grow. And he just, he's, just a, he's a magnificent landscaper and gardener, he's always working in it. It's just beautiful. But it's taken a number of years, and each year it gets better and better. And it's the same with marriage. Marriage takes work, you have to work it and you have to keep it. You have to tend to it. Many of you right now are working in your gardens or you're you know, pulling up weeds. You're trying to get things prepped and ready as the spring rains have come. And, and, and the, the relationship of marriage is a unique one because it requires constant attention, constant cultivation, constant work. And in, in, in this regard, marriage is unique. It's utterly unique. It's like no other relationship. And this is why it actually points us towards our relationship with God. I have college buddies that I can call that I haven't seen for 10 or 15 years, and we can pick up as if yesterday, even though we haven't talked. I have many relationships that don't require constant attention. Even the relationships that you have with people you see on a regular basis, whether it's coworkers or friends around, there's a way that the relationship takes up where it left off. But marriage is not like that. Marriage is the kind of relationship that requires your constant attention. It's like a garden. You give it two or three weeks without attention, you're going to have a bunch of weeds. And in that sense, it's important. And C.S. Lewis talks about the difference between marriage and friendship is that friendship is you're, you're looking at something you have in common. This is also true of marriage, by the way. You look at something you love in common, right? But marriage, lovers, eros, you're looking at each other. You're looking at each other, and so there's this marriage, there's this relationship, and you have to attend to it. And I think that's so important, because it's easy for us to get lazy in our marriages. There is something quite godlike about marriage. It actually teaches us about what it means to be in relationship with God. So your relationship with God is not like a college buddy. It's not. Like, you can't be like, and I think we often think about this, like, you know I haven't been to church or I haven't talked to God in I don't know a couple of years or a couple months and then I come back and it's like hey God it's how's it going that's how we often think about our relationship with God if you did that in marriage like your marriage would be over like you can't do that and it's the same with your relationship with God it it requires constant care and devotion you have to work at it it's dynamic and the reality is it's always changing just like you're changing and so, a relationship, marriage is a garden. You have to be faithful to it. but You have to work and keep it. You can't let it go on autopilot. You have to work, married couples, you have to work at intimacy. You have to work at intimacy. It doesn't, it doesn't just fall, I mean, it just doesn't happen. This is, the, this is the hard transition from being in love in the beginning when everything just seems to come natural to a maturing marriage because... maturing marriage, there's just a lot more demands and, you know, the same old stuff doesn't always work. You have to work at it. But that's a maturing of your love. That's when it gets really deep and meaningful. The original Garden of Eden was not meant to just be this little sanctuary for Adam and Eve to kind of enjoy the jubilee of their love, to prance around naked. and It was actually meant to be expanded. It was actually meant to go out and the Garden was the center of civilization. See, the center of civilization is a garden in the beginning of the Bible. And at the end, it's going to be a garden again. But Adam and Eve were actually not just put there to be in love and to stare at each other and enjoy one another. They were actually put there to do something, to work. And the mark of true love and marriage, and it's really true love in general, is that it's fruitful. See, a garden is a place where things grow. Things that didn't exist come to life. There's fruit. It bears fruit. But also with that fruit comes responsibility. The more, the bigger your garden, the more you have to attend to it. And it's the same with your love. The more your love deepens as a married couple, and and really, friends, this applies that to to all aspects of life. The more your love deepens, the more fruit and the more responsibility you have in your life. And that brings us to the second point: is which which is that your lo- your marriage is a throne. Adam and Eve were kings; they were a king and a queen at the beginning of creation. And if you think about a wedding, think about a wedding. What happens in a wedding? You have this procession, right? You have a bride and a bridegroom and they're dressed like royalty. And you have, you have the court, you know, you have the best man and, and you have the wedding party and then you have an audience. And there's a procession up. There's very royal imagery here. And even when you look at the Song of Songs, it's King Solomon and his bride. And one in, in Solomon, uh, in the song, it says of this, when the king is coming to receive his bride, he says, go out, O daughters of Zion, and look upon King Solomon with the crown with which his mother has crowned him on the day of his wedding and on the day of the gladness of his heart. In Genesis 1, when God created human beings, it sa- he says, so God created man in his own image. God created him. Male and female, he created them. And bless them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing. We call this the cultural mandate. But notice that that cultural mandate to have dominion and authority, to cultivate, in other words, to create gardens in the world, is given to this married couple. And they are like a king and a queen. And friends, your love, your marriage, you're like a king and a queen, which means you have a kingdom. Normally it's just a household, so don't be getting too big of a head about this. But you do have a kingdom. You have a household. You have responsibility. You have, if you have children, you have subjects in a sense. Sorry, children, but it's true. You're responsible. I think oftentimes... And our culture, and this is the problem when we think about marriage as about happiness, is we think about marriage as, as a kind of our private garden. It's a thing that, you know, we hold, clu- and, and, and there's a way that a lot of marriages, I think contemporary marriages are very narcissistic. They're very selfish, because they're all about us sort of just finding our garden and closing it off to the world and enjoying one another. When a true garden actually expands with fruit, and actually a garden all good gardens are things that other people want to enjoy. And it's the same with your marriage. I, I love, I love um, the witness of Dietrich Bonhoeffer when he was in prison. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is a theologian and a churchman who was imprisoned in, during World War II in 1944 for tr- being a part of a plot to assassinate Hitler. He dies in prison before the, before the Allies are able to liberate him. But his best friend... Um, His best friend is getting married, Eberhard, and um, Bonhoeffer writes a wedding homily from prison to give to his friend uh, Eberhard and his wife Renata. And he says something in that that I think is so important about this. And imagine, and is also engaged to a woman named Maria, who he'll never marry, (laughs) obviously. But he says this to Eberhard to and Renata. He says, your marriage is more than your love for one another. In marriage, you are placed at a post of responsibility towards the world and mankind. And your love is your own private possession. But marriage is more than something personal. It's a status. It's an office. Marriage is a status. It's an office of responsibility. It's a post in the world and it's the same with our love, is that the throne of our, our love is a throne. And God rules the world through our love, in a sense. That's the model, right? It's not a rule of, here's how it is, it's a rule of love, of nurture, of cultivation, of responsibility, of faithfulness. In Jesus Christ, friends, when you are married, and even as those of you who are single, you still are royalty. You share in the office of Christ and you participate in all the realities I'm talking about with marriage. In Jesus Christ, brother and sister, you are the new Adam and the new Eve. And when you are married, you are the new Adam and the new Eve together. And your responsibility in this world, east of Eden, is to create Eden for everyone, for those who can taste it. Friends, don't waste your marriage on yourself. (laughs) Don't waste your marriage on yourself. Serve the kingdom. Have a missional marriage. Think about how your marriage is more than just your own personal happiness or the personal happiness of your own children. Those are good things. And they'll actually be greater when you include more people in them and you serve God with your marriage. Friends, and and married couples, do not underestimate the power of marriage. (laughs) This is, I mean, marriage is a power. It's incredible power and stability when it's maintained and it's cultivated and it's cared for. As married people, you should be hospitable. Part of getting married is creating new life, being open to the possibility that God brings new life through your own children, biologically, but new life in other ways. Because true love always opens up and is fruitful, always takes on more responsibility and gives itself to the other, not just for its own good. But also, our marriages become outposts of faithfulness in the world. If there's anything about our culture that is just, we can generalize, say, is that we are incredibly unfaithful. <laughs> We're so unfaithful. We don't know what it means to be faithful to anything. And you know what? That hurts. That hurts people. That hurts children. That hurts society. It hurts us. And friends the beauty of marriage of covenant faithfulness is that your marriage can be a place of co- an outpost of covenant faithfulness because there's no flourishing there's no gardens there's no nourishment in the world without faithfulness there is none and so think about your marriages as places where people who don't have stable family situations can have stable family situations people who need friendship and so your marriage also you of course, when you get married, you have wealth. Over time, you, accru- you accrue things. You accrue influence. And you can use that wealth and that time and that position again for God's kingdom. Okay, so the problem is this. The problem is that none of you, and I include myself in this, possess the holiness and the character necessary to have that garden last a lifetime <laughs> or to take on the responsibility of the throne all of you all of us when we enter marriage and, and this is true of many stations in life we enter in and we are under equipped we do not have the character and, and the hard thing about marriage and the thing that that we run up aground is in marriage is we realize that we've reached the end of my ability to be patient or to be kind. My character is at a, at the max, right? And this is really the, the, third, the third point I want to close with, which is this that marriage marriage is a wash basin. Or perhaps in more contemporary, less elegant, it's a bathtub. <laughs> Your marriage is like a bathtub. It's a wash basin. It's, it's something that God gives and new creation to purify you, to cleanse you, and that brings us back, of course, to our text in Ephesians. Now again, I mean, when we think about marriage in our culture, we tend to think the highest good of marriage is happiness. If, but if that's your understanding of marriage, if the highest good of marriage is happiness, then um, as soon as you encounter unhappiness in your marriage, you're going to be looking for a way out. Mer- happiness is not a glue and a bond strong enough to keep marriages forever. And in fact, and it's really not what your highest desire is. The greatest desire or role that marriage plays in our life is holiness. God gives us marriage not simply for happiness. He gives it to us for holiness. And if, actually, if you want to be truly happy, you have to be holy, which often involves a lot of suffering and pain and responsibility. I know these are hard things to hold together, but marriage is a place where we learn about the purification of desire, and the cultivation of, the, vir- the, virtue of the, the virtue of faithfulness. Marriage is a place where you learn. Now, again, like if you're a single person, you're looking in on marriage and wanting to be married, oftentimes you think, if I can just get married, then all my sexual problems will go away. Not at all. In some sense, you contain them in a way, but marriage is not, again, a place, for, it's not a wild. It's a garden. It requires some, some real care and cultivation and intentionality and self-restraint. But the love of marriage, it's a cleansing love. Again, Paul says, Husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or such a thing, such that they can be holy without blemish. The thing about marriage is you, you come into this marriage and you literally get naked before another person. But you become naked not just in terms of your clothing, but you become naked emotionally. That's the idea of marriage, right? You want to be with somebody who can see you for who you are, and you see them, and they don't actually turn away. That's the beauty of marriage. But when that happens, though, we all know that we're not always comfortable with our nakedness. And in marriage, the, the, the nakedness gets revealed are those blemishes of our character. I never realized how selfish I was until I got married. (laughs) And I'm reminded of that again and again. (laughs) Or how impatient I can be, especially now that I have children. I mean, there's a way that 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 relationship and the intensity of it, the intimacy of it, such that I can't just hide, exposes me, (laughs) exposes my weaknesses, exposes my sinfulness. And, there's somebody right there to point it out. Immediately. And that's why we often retreat in marriage, and we, we want to, I mean, because intimacy is hard, friends. <laughs> to maintain it, it requires you to let your spouse help cleanse you, to help clean you, to call you out. And it goes both directions. Friends, this is so important, because this is, and you, what you have to realize is this, is that God is using your spouse, Jesus Christ himself, He's using your spouse to wash you. And, and let me just say a sidebar for, for those of you who are single. Friends, those of you who are single, I know it's hard. but the, and, and this is the truth. You know, God uses the whole church to cleanse us. But the reason why covenant faithfulness is important, in, not just in marriage, but in the church, and to have relationships with people who can get in your face. So often in church... As soon as people encounter conflict or they get pushback, they retreat and they go. And, the, and, and one, of the, one of the perils, and there's perils in marriage and there's perils of singleness. but one of the perils in singleness is that you live by yourself and over time you can be a world unto yourself and you don't really have anybody except maybe your boss or maybe a good friend time to time that can challenge you. Don't push away those kinds of relationships. Those are precisely the things that God will use to wash you. You need those. You can't see your own filthiness. Marriage is a sacramental reality. Jesus Christ stands in the middle of marriage. Go back to the garden when God creates Eve. He puts Adam to sleep. He pulls the woman from his side, from a rib, and then he brings her to him. God is the one who's marrying. God is in the middle of that marriage, and he's giving both to one another as a gift. And in the same way, Jesus Christ, as the creator, (laughs) stands in our midst, not just as the one who creates out of nothing, but the one who recreates, takes the fallen creation and creates something new. And friends, the reality of marriage is this, and this is hard for us to get, but it's Jesus Christ sends in the middle of our marriages as Christians. If you're a Christian, Jesus Christ sends in the middle of your marriage. He is the invisible presence there. And that to love your spouse, to love your husband, to love your wife is to love them through Jesus Christ. It is to have intimacy through them through Jesus Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer again. I want to, one more reference to Bonhoeffer in the letters. He was writing another letter to his friend Eberhard Bedka, and this is in 1948 in May. And uh, Bedka or Eberhard um, and his wife, they have a little boy now, and this is during the bombing raids as well. I mean, the end of the war is is near, and Bonhoeffer's in the Tegel prison, and so there's letters that go back and forth. But um, Eberhard had visited Bonhoeffer a couple days before, and he was very distraught and worried. There's bombs, and he's, he's worried just about his safety, right? You have American bombers, and he's worried about his family and his life. And, 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 and Bonhoeffer writes this gentle letter of admonition. <coughs> and he, and, and he, um, he uses this term, which I, I need to introduce you, you, a musical term, cantus firmus. A cantus firmus, that's a fixed song. And he uses this image of Bonhoeffer was a great musician and pianist. And, and so he, this idea of a cantus firmus, and um, it's, a, it's an underlying melody, right? It's the fixed song that all the other songs play off of, the polyphony, right? And so here's, here's what Bonhoeffer says to Ebhard. He says, there's always a danger in all strong erotic love that one, might, one may love what I might call the polyphony of life and all the different loves, right? All the different melodies. And what I mean is that God wants us to love him eternally with our whole hearts, not in such a way as to injure or to weaken our earthly love, but to provide a kind of cantus firmus, a fixed song, which is clear and plain. The counterpoint can be developed to its limits. Do you see what I'm driving at? I wanted to tell you to have a good, clear cantus firmus. That is the only way to a full and perfect sound when the counterpoint has a firm support and can't come adrift or get out of tune while remaining distinct, whole in its own right. Only only polyphony of this kind can give life a wholeness and at the same time assure us that nothing calamitous can happen as long as the fixed song keeps going. What he's saying is this. The love of God, the person of Jesus Christ, is the cantus firmus. He's the fixed song. He has to be the underlying melody of your life. And if he's the underlying melody of your life, all the other songs, all the other love songs, nothing can endanger it. Nothing can rip it out of harmony. I think that's a beautiful picture of what Paul is saying here about marriage, is that Jesus Christ is the fix song of our life, of our marriages. We have to learn to sing that melody, to know that it's there in the midst, and that nothing can harm us. Jesus Christ is our bridegroom, and he's the one who gives us that song, and we sing later about tuning our hearts to his grace. And that's what marriage is. And that's what the Christian life is. It's learning to tune our hearts to his song, his song of love for us. Let's pray. Oh Father, we we ask that that song of Jesus Christ, the one that has been sung from eternity, which ha- but has now been fully revealed. May it be the underlying song of our life, the rhythm, the enduring melody that all of our loves hang upon. And so this morning, Lord, may you expand our hearts and our imaginations from you. Wherever we find ourselves as married or single or separated, help us to know that Jesus Christ is the fixed song of our life. And that is a true joy. It's in his name we pray. Amen.